0: Well, here we've got uh, the Olivet Prophecy, again, uh, Luke 21. But before we get stuck into the Olivet Prophecy, I'd just like to uh, have a little chat about the, the incident of the, the poor widow. Um, because, you know, this poor widow, verse 2, she throws in there the two mites, two uh, very small coins. And He very sensitively uh, comments that she cast in more than they all but she, verse 4, threw in all the living that she had. Not all the wealth she had, but all the living. The implication could be that this was, as it were, the tiny little capital that she used to eke out a living, that she might have uh, used that money to buy something which she then resold, uh, at a slightly greater price and lived off the uh, the difference that, that she made between what she sold it for, and what she bought it for, but that her, her capital, as it were, her living, was those two little coins. So it's a bit like throwing in your, your pension scheme, maybe in, uh, in our times, uh, throwing in your, your capital, throwing in that which gives you, humanly speaking, some uh, certainty of surviving day by day. And you could translate it more sort of widely, I, I suppose, to say that this is equivalent to sacrificing a, a career that, uh, that you could have, apparently, uh, for the sake of the Lord. Sacrificing that which apparently is the basis of, of your sort of human living in this world. And she just gave it. And, of course the uh, the immediate context in uh, at the end of chapter 20 verse 47 is that the the Jewish system devoured widows houses and then straight on in chapter 21 you've got from verse 1 to 4 leading straight on from that this example of this this widow woman who gives her her house uh, her as it were all that she had and the implication is that yes these pharisees misused that money and devoured it uh, upon their own lusts and yet she still gave it to god for, and jesus was impressed now his point isn't what a waste because that would be rather similar to the way that the disciples criticized the woman who poured out all the expensive ointment on jesus and they said what a waste the uh, that could have been sold turned into money and the money could have been used to, to help the poor etc and I think these kind of incidents, that one of the, the expensive ointment and this one of the, the widow giving her, her living to people who devoured widows' houses, I think that it just is making the point that it's not, as it were, what you achieve by your giving. It is the, the spirit of giving in and of itself. Of course, that God doesn't need anything, not our money, not our works, not anything. But the point is that these things can be given by us, in the end, for our benefit. The fact that they, that the actual gift or sacrifice may or may not achieve something, as it were, is neither here nor there. It is the desire to give to God. And I think that in our giving, and I'm not just talking about giving money, I mean our giving of our time, of our heart, of ourselves, of our soul, of our concerns, etc., we give not expecting, I, I think, some great, great recognition or nor even some great achievement as a result of that giving. Now, it appears that some people give in a more creative and uh, constructive way, apparently, than others yeah, you know, this lady threw in her, her little bit of money into the, into the temple coffers just for it to be devoured by, by the scribes, etc., who loved to walk in long, expensive robes. And yet it was still given to God, and that is, is the point. And as Jesus is saying, this woman gave much more than all of them because God noticed what was in her heart it is therefore as Paul says when he talks about giving it's reckoned not according to what a man has it's all about our desire to give and I think we should take at least that out of any reflection on the death and resurrection of the Lord that his giving becomes the spirit of our lives that the spirit of Christ was to give that he came not to be served but to serve it is more blessed to give than to receive and as I say that that spirit of of giving should characterise our lives what am I here to give so often one hears the comment I don't bother going to that meeting or to any church meeting sometimes because I don't get anything out of it and that's true Uh, actually (laughs) I, I, I could say the same, but why we go to a church meeting, why we bother supporting functions and stuff like that, is because we are there to give, it is an opportunity to give, it really is, not, as I say, financially, this word giving immediately starts to trigger uh, dollar signs, and uh, that, that's not at all what the idea is at all. Jesus, although he was rich, Paul says, made himself poor for our sakes. And yet he was not a uh, a wealthy person in duller terms. That's clear enough. But he was rich in what he had of his relationship, his understanding. He gave and gave. And that is the spirit by which we are to live. And if only we can really get that clear in our minds then disappointment at how life appears to have worked out compared to the guy next to us, that the people I went to school with, uh, whatever, now own their own properties, and they have uh, cars, or more than one car, and all this kind of thing. This sort of thing should really never really seriously figure in our our feelings, although, of course, we, we may well notice it. Because we are here to give, and they are here, as they see it, to receive but we are not here to receive we are here to give and to receive spiritually in the life which is to come now Jesus taught earlier in his ministry and the reference in Luke is Luke 14.33 that we must forsake all that we have in order to truly be his disciple and I wonder if this incident is recorded by Luke towards the end of the Lord's ministry to kind of exemplify this aspect of discipleship, by drawing our attention to a woman who gave to God all that she had, all her living, that is, all that we have. She forsook it. And I wondered if really this anonymous woman, unnoticed by anyone, it seems, apart from Jesus, is really being set up as the model for all of us. Now, that is a scary thing, because if she's set up as a model for all of us, the whole point of the story is that nobody including the believers, that is the disciples, noticed her, but Jesus did. And so the spirit of giving is that we do not want to be noticed, and the true giving will not be noticed. And of course, Jesus taught that right at the beginning of his ministry, when he said you know, that one of the, the planks, as it were, of his manifesto in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Principles of the Kingdom, is that the left hand should not know what the right hand is doing. And I I have heard that that is an Aramaic idiom for not having praise of men for your generosity. The whole idea of uh, plaques being put on buildings or hospital wards or hospital beds or park benches that this bench or whatever was given by so and so and so and so, I mean, no... (laughs) that could not be uh, more the opposite of the spirit of Christian giving. And we may say, oh, no, you know, I'm not like that. And yet it is true, I think, that in our giving we have a natural tendency within the structure of our being that we want to be noticed. We want to be appreciated. I think particularly one learns this in, in family life, that parents for example are disappointed that kids don't appreciate or do so much for you but you never notice you never say thank you you don't really appreciate it that's how it is and I think that is that's life that is giving yes you know you have ticked the box you've given because the minute you're appreciated and recognized for it and there are accolades to you and uh, yeah, nice comments about you on internet forums and in magazines and whatever that you gave and well done well you kind of missed the point you you have missed the point uh, of, of giving and of this woman being set up as our example now I repeat for the uh, I know I can be a bit re- repetitive but I repeat for the uh, 99th time that I am not I am not talking really about financial giving because This is why I've noticed a lot of believers who are poor tend to say, well, I'm poor, this has nothing to do with me, this giving business. But it is because it is to do with all of us to whom God's grace has been given. Because the word grace is another form of, of the Greek verb to give. Grace is giving. And this is why Paul brings the two ideas together in 2 Corinthians, when he basically says to the Corinthians, come on, Why don't you just uh, fork out a bit for your poor brethren in Judea where there's a famine going on? Why? Because you have been given grace. So therefore you should give. In that case, uh, it seems it was uh, largely financial, possibly a little bit uh, material um, giving. But all the same, God's grace and our experience and receipt of it is what motivates our giving. Right. So, the uh, the, uh, Olivet Prophecy. Now, as you know, this is recorded three times in fairly long chapters, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Given the wonder of inspiration and the the preservation of the Bible, it's quite clear that we are expected to pay due attention to this, that really uh, this is important. And I... Just from that uh, viewpoint alone, I would argue that if the whole thing is only relevant to A.D. 70, then I wonder why there would be that emphasis, which there clearly is. And uh, also one wonders why the whole of the Book of Revelation, or nearly all of it, seems to me to be a, an expansion, if you like, on the themes and the ideas which are brought up in the, sermon, in the, uh, in the Olivet Prophecy the seals, the uh, the vials, even the trumpets, those judgments are very clearly linked to the the words of the Olivet Prophecy. If the whole thing is about AD 70, I, I wonder why that would be. And yet, what are we to make of this? I mean, they come in this childish way and point out to Jesus, wow, look at uh, this wonderful temple, and he says, look, There's coming a time when this will not be any more. Not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And um, then he goes on to to talk about it all. And it it all seems to have some relevance to AD 70. The language is very appropriate to AD 70 in some places and particularly to the disciples. For example, their persecution, verse 12, uh, by the synagogues. Well, that very much sounds like first-century Israel. And yet, there can be no doubt, as one studies the prophecy more, more closely, that it is clearly talking about the last days. I mean, verse 27 here, Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Look up, lift up your heads, 28, because your redemption draws nigh. And in the talks on Matthew 24 and Mark 13, I've pointed out a number of Old Testament passages which are clearly talking about the coming of Christ, which are alluded to here. And I also made the point that to argue for a break in fulfillment during the chapter, that part of it, the first bit is about AD 70, the rest is about the last days, just doesn't really seem seem to add up. Um, here in the the context um, of uh, Luke 21 let's have a look at uh, verse 24 where Jerusalem should be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled well that is quoting from Zechariah 12 verse 3 in the Septuagint where Jerusalem is described as a burdensome stone a stone trodden down by the Gentiles and the context Uh, really is, I think, clearly uh, there in Zechariah 12 on into 13 and 14 is talking about the last days the the coming of Christ and I made the point in Matthew 24 that the continued emphasis upon the parousia, the Greek word translated coming, uh, really that word definitely means the physical presence of a person and to argue that it talks about A.D. 70, I, I find pretty weak because we're really saying that the uh, the coming of Christ is an invisible coming, an invisible presence, and, and that's that's what Jehovah's Witness uh, theology. That, that's not what uh, that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what the word parousia means. And that that's about as simple as. We've also got the statement uh, repeatedly made in all three of the records of the. Olivet Prophecy, that this is the time of trouble such as never was and never will be repeated. And I have a problem in thinking that the tribulations of AD 70 are worse than the tribulations there will be in the last days before Christ comes. And I also made the point when we're looking at Matthew 24 that... The parables of Matthew 25 are, as it were, an extension of the Olivet Prophecy. We don't have them recorded here in Luke, but uh, the parable, for example, of the, the wise and foolish virgins, they're all talking about judgment. Judgment at the return of Christ, at the coming of Christ. And they are an expansion upon the Olivet Prophecy. That, I believe, is its theme, the coming of Christ. The theory has been suggested that in here in Luke 21, that the the stuff that was about AD 70 finishes in 24, and then in verse 25 there starts a section that talks about the last days. I'm sorry, but I, <clears throat> I really don't see that at all. When you read particularly in Matthew, the whole prophecy sounds as if it is a continuous flow. and I... I think I made the point when we talked about Matthew 24 about how often the word then and those days occurs. Then, 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 then. There's, it's, it flows right right through. <clears throat> I mean, really, if in 25 if there's really a break there I find it difficult to understand how the parallel in Mark thirteen twenty four could say, but in those days, after that tribulation, da-da-da. The implication is that <clears throat> the days of the tribulation are the days that have been spoken of uh, previously. And then, you know, verse 22, which is supposedly in the first part of the prophecy, Uh, that uh, supposedly refers only to eighty seventy. these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled well, I really have a problem with with that Um, that really all things that were written were fulfilled in seventy. that's clearly not the case there's plenty of prophecies about the kingdom that were not fulfilled in seventy. and so why is it that there is such a, a barrier to the point of quite serious aggression and anger, even uh, when people suggest, like I'm suggesting, that no, the entire prophecy is is to be read as a whole, and it refers to the last days. My, my suggestion is that Christ could have come in AD 70 This was a possible scenario, that was just not possible. Was made not possible. Uh, for a number of reasons for one there was no spiritual fruit on the fig tree of israel that is israel did not repent and the gospel it was to go into all the world and then shall the end come according to matthew and, and mark and yet they didn't take the gospel into all the world because they preferred first of all to only preach to the jews and then they were persecuted the church was persecuted and they had to go and start taking the message to the Gentiles as they travelled around under persecution. And then they got caught up with church politics that, well, the brethren in Jerusalem say we mustn't preach and we mustn't do this, and well, okay, we've got to circumcise the converts, well, yes. And there's all that stuff that, that kind of held the whole thing back. And so I think that the uh, the, the factor of Israel not repenting, lack of spirituality, amongst the the early church uh, division etc and a refusal to really take the gospel into all the world as I should have done meant that Christ did not come in AD 70 as was planned so although elements of the prophecy did clearly have a fulfillment in AD 70 God's word still comes true it's just that it was all deferred until the final coming of Christ But I think why there is this barrier to accepting that the whole prophecy as a whole and refers to our last days is because the picture that's painted here of what we would therefore have to be going through before Christ comes is pretty scary. There is going to be apostasy, breakup, many shall stumble. Uh, and there clearly is going to be a persecution of God's people in those last days. In fact, the section that um, talks about um, the, the persecution of, uh, of the believers, Jesus uh, says after that that well, for, before all these things happen, there will be all this, uh, all this persecution. You see, verse 12, he's talked about nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Verse 10, earthquakes in various places, famines, pestilences, plagues, terrible things going on in the natural world. And frankly, you must be a a blockhead if you really don't read those verses and see some outline similarity with what's going on right before our eyes today. But then he says, but before all these things, verse 12, they shall lay their hands on you and shall persecute you. Now, before, what does that mean? Before nation rises up against nation? Well, no, because I think that that Greek word is translated sometimes before really carries the idea of more importantly. In other words, the the most significant sign is going to be the persecution of the believers, of you. And actually, if you read carefully in the Olivet Prophecy, there is a a difference between what is uh, addressed to you and they. The you is clearly the disciples, the believers. They will lay hands on you, verse 12. Um, You, verse 16, shall be betrayed, my parents, etc. Some of you will be put to death, etc. You should be hated of all men for my name's sake. It could be argued that what he's saying here is that this tribulation is going to be so terrible that, verse 19, in your endurance, you will win your souls. You you could uh, understand that as meaning that those who go through successfully, endure successfully the tribulation, will be rewarded, therefore, with eternal life. That's how I actually understand verse 19 myself. Um, i'd be interested in anyone else's uh, views on verse 19 that's how i read it and that chimes in i think with a the kind of feeling that i've had and that i guess we've all had that hey if jesus is going to come in my lifetime i will be in that generation that will not die and yeah jesus will come get a judgment by god's grace we go into his kingdom we will be the only generation that does not taste of death and that is a huge responsibility because, if you like, theologically, doctrinally, I understand that human death is significant because the death of the believer is died with Christ so that we might rise with him. And we symbolize it in baptism, of course, but we actually physically live it out. And so the, the last generation, I submit, will have to go through a process which unites them with the sufferings of Christ, so that they, as it were, die with him. And then he physically comes, he appears, and they are given eternal life. And that's why the word that Matthew uses for the tribulation is the same word that Paul uses when he talks about filling up that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in his body. The the crucifixion afflictions or sufferings or tribulation of Jesus is what is the the tribulation that we will go through in the last days. And yet there is an element of open-endedness in God's prophetic uh, program, it seems to me. And you bring into play how Jesus said... Uh, to one of the churches in Revelation, that if you keep the word of my patience, I will keep you from the hour of tribulation that is to come upon the whole earth. If it seems potentially avoidable, then Isaiah 26 can come into play. Come, my people, enter into your chambers until these calamities are overpassed, as if there will be what uh, is described elsewhere in Isaiah as the little sanctuary. Somehow, and how uh, mechanically it works out, I don't know, but uh, somehow we will be preserved from this tribulation. But why would that be? It would be for those who have learnt in their time of opportunity, in their lives now, the lesson that we are identified with Jesus. Those who have given as he gave of himself, like that widow woman did. And really, we make the answer now. If we, through this bread and wine, really get it, that we you know, devote ourselves to him, and his death and his sufferings become ours, then we will not need to go through this latter-day tribulation. And in the talk on Mark 13, I mentioned that particularly in Mark's version of the Olivet Prophecy, there's a whole load of allusions to the death of Jesus on the cross. And the point is that we can suffer with him now and go through his tribulation, his affliction right now. And in that case, we will be identified with him. We will not need to have this experience of the last days whether I'm right or wrong in all this doesn't really uh, matter because the essence that I'm trying to get out whether you agree with my prophetic uh, scenario or not um, the essence is surely one we can all agree on and that is that as that little bit of bread becomes physically part of our metabolism and body and as this very small little piece of wine becomes absorbed into our body so we should be absorbing the crucifixion sufferings of Jesus so that we might share in his life with him and putting meaning into words that means that, for example in every betrayal that you go through you are actually being asked to share in the betrayal that Jesus went through at the hand of Judas and to some extent at the hand of Peter and all his followers whatever physical pain you're going through he went through on the cross whatever hurt of rejection you're going through something that he went through in his time of dying any ineffable sadness in your relationship or feelings towards your mother that's what Jesus went through with Mary and so it goes on and this is the answer, one of the answers uh, to the question of why did the Lord have to suffer as much as he did And the answer to that, one of the answers, one window onto it, is so that there could be nobody anywhere at any time amongst God's children, and that includes you and me tonight, who could ever say, nobody knows how I feel, nobody knows what I went through. Sure, on this earth there may be nobody, but there is in heaven, there is within this cosmos, a person. The living Lord Jesus, who knows exactly how you feel. And so, as Paul says, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Just as surely as you went under that water when you were baptized, and you came up out of it. You didn't stay there.